Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. Well, uh, it's a blessing to be able to share a word with all of you. Uh, it's been a little while since I've, I've been in the pulpit, so I might be a little out of practice, but uh, this seems to be a very gracious church, and I certainly have appreciated that. Now, my sermon may be a little bit different than what's the norm here. Uh, generally, Pastor Roland or Chris will take a few verses and really do a deep dive to better help us understand the scriptures. Now, I don't really have the benefit of working through a series, rather just this singular sermon. So what I'm going to do instead is we're going to look at the Gospel of John chapter 7. And we're going to kind of do uh, an overview of it, really more of like a 10,000-foot view, as opposed to uh, diving deep into the individual verses, really, again, because I just don't have time to do that. But as we work through John chapter 7, there are three questions that I want us to be thinking about and considering uh, during our time this morning. So the first question is, who is Jesus to you? So it's an individual believer sitting here at Rosemont Baptist Church. Who is Jesus to you? Number two, who is the real Jesus? And number three, are they the same? You see, the answer to these questions is really of the utmost importance. It is the difference between life and death, between eternal hope and eternal damnation. Now, this seems to be a very spiritually mature church, so it probably would come as no surprise when I tell all of you that Christ was not the legal last name of Jesus. When we say Jesus Christ, it may be a little bit easier to understand when we say Jesus the Christ, because you see, Christ is one of the most important defining characteristics of who Jesus was and who he remains to this day. Christ is the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for those who call upon the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we need to understand that he is Jesus the Christ. Because you see, there are many out there in this world who will acknowledge That Jesus was a real man. They'll say, yeah, you know, I believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. They may even say that Jesus was a good man, a moral man, a wise man. But there are many out there who will stop at that. They will say, yeah, Jesus was a real man, but he was simply just Jesus of Nazareth and really nothing more. But hopefully to all in this room, 
He is more. He is Jesus the Christ. We acknowledge that he was a real historical figure, but of course, so much more than that. The Messiah, our Savior. And so that's really the focus this morning is the real Jesus Christ according to the Bible. Not according to any tradition, any church, any denomination, but rather the real Jesus according to the scriptures. And so we're going to be working through John chapter 7 to really suss out who the real Jesus is. Now, of course, the entire Bible reveals the real Jesus. But for this morning, for sake of the short time that we have, we'll be looking at John chapter 7. And so we're going to read the first 13 verses here in just a moment. But before we get into that, I want to give a quick overview of John chapter 6. Because you'll all see as we get into John chapter 7. Let me flip over there really quickly. So the very beginning of John chapter 7 says, after these things. And so we need to understand, well, what were these things? So in John chapter 6, we read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. Now, of course, with women and children, there was a much larger crowd than just simply 5,000, but it was 5,000 men. And so Jesus fed this crowd with fish and bread, and he then used that as an illustration to teach about some spiritual truths. You see, that's something that Jesus would often do. He would use something physical to teach about a spiritual reality. Now, this crowd that he had in front of him was primarily a Jewish audience, and so they would have known the stories about their ancestors who had been wandering through the desert for 40 years with Moses. Now, during that time when the Jewish people were wandering in the desert with Moses, God physically provided for them with manna or bread from heaven. And so here in John chapter 6, Jesus did the same thing. He physically provided with this crowd with bread, but he then uses that to give a teaching, an illustration, how he himself was the bread from heaven. And the reality is whoever takes partakes of that bread will have spiritual sustenance. So Jesus came not just to provide physically for the people, but most importantly, spiritually for the people. Now, the teaching that he had given in John chapter 6 was a very difficult teaching for many people to understand. And we're not really going to get into that now. But in John chapter 6, he says, for you to inherit inherit, uh, eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, of course, this caused a lot of confusion. And there were many at that time who had been following Jesus But really, they were following him for the wrong reasons, because as soon as things got tough, as soon as Jesus didn't meet their expectations and as soon as he gave them a teaching that they couldn't understand, they no longer followed him. You see, when we read the word disciple, that is simply a follower of Jesus. And so hopefully all of us here this morning are, in fact, disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, and there is also a big difference between a disciple and an apostle. So it's important to understand for that here. And I have a John chapter 6 up here on the screen, just a couple of verses. So Jesus had just given his teaching, and it said, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And we ultimately see that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So again, they had been following Jesus, but we can see that they had been following him for the wrong reasons. And at the end of John chapter 6, really it's only going to be his 12 
that remained, the 12 apostles. And so that's our jumping off point for John chapter 7. I'm going to read through the first 13 verses here, and then we'll take some time to talk about it. So John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So let's go back to the very beginning there. There's a couple of interesting things to note. So number one, we see that this interaction between Jesus and his brothers is taking place with uh, in, during a time called Feast of the Booths. Now, there are several different names for this, Sukkot, Feast of the Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, and really what this feast was, and it's something that happens every year in the fall. So during the time when those Israelites, the Jews, were wandering through the desert with Moses, they were not living in their permanent home, which was the land of Israel. Rather, they were living in temporary homes or probably most likely tents. And so really the Feast of Booths is to commemorate that. And the Jewish people, even still today, the practicing Jews, for seven days they will leave their home and live in temporary dwellings and tents. In fact, the company I work for uh, full-time in Delta, there's a couple of there that are called Hebrew Roots. Now, these individuals, what they have done is they were Christian, but they have decided for whatever reason that they want to put themselves back under the covenant of the Old Testament. And so every year during the fall, it's a brother and sister. They don't live in their homes. They go out and live in a tent. So it's a very interesting practice. But what's really interesting here. Is in John chapter 6, we had Jesus calling back and referencing that time when the Israelites were wandering through the desert with Israel. And now here we are in John chapter 7, celebrating the Feast of Booths. And so it appears to me that Jesus' brothers had the wrong expectations of Jesus. It seems like Jesus' brothers, as was the case with many Jews at that time, that they had expected Jesus to come and be some sort of a public or a political leader. Most likely they expected that Jesus had come to deliver the Israelites from under the bondage of Roman oppression. 
But that was not why Jesus had come. In fact, what's really interesting is it appears that Jesus' brothers, according to verses 3 and 4, had appointed themselves as Jesus' campaign managers. His brother said, Jesus, don't you want to be known publicly? Well, if you want to be known publicly, you need to go down to Judea and make yourself known. We know that you're a wise man. We know that you have done many wonderful miracles. Why don't you go and show your works to the people? Because you will gain public notoriety and influence now of course the scripture doesn't say all of that that's a little bit of my interpretation but it is interesting that jesus's own brothers had this idea about what jesus should be doing but what does verse five say there it says for even not even his brothers were believing in him it's a very profound statements you know as we as christians and i think we rightly focus mostly on the last three years of Jesus' life on earth. Really, that was the apex of his time on earth, his ministry that ultimately left it, led to his death and resurrection. But think about, just for a moment, what was it like growing up in the same house as Jesus? You know, I can't imagine what sort of things that his brothers experienced that we may never know on this side of heaven. We know that Mary knew exactly who Jesus was before he was even born. I don't see any indication here that she would have kept that from his brothers. Maybe, I don't know. But the fact remains that Jesus' brothers no doubt saw many and heard many wonderful things. They knew that Jesus was a very special individual. In fact, they were with him in John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, when he turned the water to wine. So they knew, Jesus' brothers knew that he was a great man, he was a special man, a man, a miracle worker, but that was not enough to make them true believers. They knew that he could do many wonderful things, and that's why they said, Jesus, all these men are many wonderful works, go make yourself known in public so that they may see yourself too. And I also wonder if Jesus' brothers were trying to gain some sort of benefit themselves, they knew that if Jesus was to gain public notoriety, that they could benefit because they knew him. I don't know. Again, that's just me kind of looking at my own interpretation. But it just seems interesting that the scripture says for not even his brothers were believing in him. They were not true believers. So it's important to understand we can acknowledge that Jesus was a real historical figure. We can say that he was a good man, a moral man. We may even say that Jesus was a miracle worker, but that in itself does not make one a true believer. So we need to be very careful with how we understand the real Jesus. Who was Jesus? And I'm going to use this for emphasis. Do you know that even the demons recognize those things about Jesus, but yet they won't be saved? See, I have this up here. It's a, it's a scripture from John 2 and Matthew 8. So in James 2, 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. More specifically, in Matthew chapter 8, this is an interaction between Jesus and demons. And they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, what's really interesting about Matthew 8 is the demons understood this concept of the appointed time. They knew that there was an appointed time for Jesus, but yet when we look at John chapter 7, his brothers had no idea. 
So those closest to Jesus were not even believing in him, but yet the demons did. So again, it's not enough to simply believe that Jesus was a very special man. It's not enough to believe that he was a miracle worker. We need to understand the scriptures and exactly what they reveal about Jesus, his true identity. The fact remains, church, is we need to accept the full Christ or no Christ. We can't look at the Bible and say there are many great and wonderful things that Jesus teaches us, but there are certain things that I'm just not overly comfortable with. We can't make modifications like that. We accept the full biblical account of Jesus or no biblical accounts. You see, we read in the book of Revelation that it is better to be on one extreme or the other, even either a full believer or a non-believer. It's better to be hot or cold because we know that those who are lukewarm... It's almost as if the worst punishment is left for them, that Christ himself will spew us out of his mouth if we are lukewarm. So we accept the full Christ or no Christ. We accept the full biblical account of what the Bible teaches about Jesus or we don't accept any of him. You know, as I mentioned before, there are many people out there who will acknowledge that Jesus was a real historical figure. And there are many that will even acknowledge that he was an important religious figure. You know, there are certain holy books that speak about Jesus. We know the Book of Mormon speaks a lot about Jesus. I don't think the Book of Mormon Jesus is the same Jesus of the Bible. The Muslim holy book, the Quran, speaks a lot about Jesus. And in fact, this last December, it probably wasn't a big deal here because we don't have a very big Muslim community in this area. But there was a phrase going around on the Internet, and it said, I am Muslim and I love Jesus. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting. The Jesus they love is probably not the same Jesus that I love. They have a certain concept of Jesus, but again, that's not the real Jesus. So we can have certain ideologies and certain understandings of Jesus. And it goes back to that question, who is Jesus to you? It's important to understand that Jesus needs to be the real Jesus according to the scriptures. Not according to any other holy book, not the Book of Mormon, not the Quran, but the holy scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, the 66 books that we understand. Because you see, ultimately, the entire Bible speaks to Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to his coming. The New Testament tells us about his coming and also helps prepare us for his second coming. But again, and I'm going to continue to say this because it's for emphasis. We accept the full Christ or no Christ. We accept all of him or none of him. We can't make any sort of qualifications or modifications. You know, there was an author, I'm sure most of you have heard the name, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian authors. I have read many of his books. But he came up with this thing that has been coined the allegory of a madman. And this is what C.S. Lewis had to say about Jesus. We basically have three options. We can accept Jesus fully, And everything the Bible has to say about him. Or we think of him as a madman or a liar. And think about this. If somebody came walking into the doors of Rosemont Baptist Church this morning. And they said, I am the second coming of Jesus. I am the son of God. I am God himself. Most of us would probably say, yeah, that guy's a lunatic. And we wouldn't hear anything else he had to say. But yet there are so many people out there, including atheists, who will say, you know, I don't accept that Jesus was a son of God, but I do accept that he had many wise sayings. That is kind of lunacy in my mind. How can we look at somebody and we say, well, they said that they were the son of God. I don't accept that. But I think that they had other wise sayings. 
That doesn't make much sense to me. Or think about a pathological liar, somebody that we know is lying all the time. No matter how wise they may seem sometimes, we wouldn't really ever believe what they had to say. So it's the same with Jesus. If we can't accept him as being God, how could we accept anything he ever said as being wise? You see, Jesus did say, he said, I and the Father are one, but he also did claim to be God. So in the Gospel of John, we have the I am statements. There are seven of them. And any time Jesus said, I am, it was a reference to Exodus 3.14. So in Exodus 3.14, Moses had just been sent to deliver the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage. But he wanted to tell the Jewish leaders who had sent them. So he's having this interaction with God and he says, well, God, who should I tell them sent me? And in Exodus 3.14, God says, I am that I am. I am Yahweh. That's where we get the proper name of God. And so in John, the Gospel of John, whenever you see Jesus saying, I am, where he says, I am the vine, he is referencing Exodus 3.14, saying, I am that I am. And the Jewish leaders, they knew exactly what he was doing every time he said that. It's a very interesting interaction in John chapter 8. There are many Jewish leaders grumbling among themselves, as was the norm when it came to Jesus. And they said, well, Jesus, you're not greater than our father Abraham. And in John 8, 58, Jesus says, I tell you the truth before Abraham, I am. And so Jesus very clearly called himself God. And we have to accept that. We can't say that he had many wise sayings, but I don't believe he was God. Again, as a Christian, we accept the full account of Christ or no Christ. And so the next question is, are you content with the biblical account of Jesus? You know, Romans 10.9 says that in order to be saved, we confess with our mouths and believe with our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him on the third day. Are you content with that? Or do you have certain expectations that you want to have met? Now, I hope not to offend anybody this morning, but there are certain Christian denominations out there that will go to Jesus and they expect that any time they pray for it, that maybe their bank account is going to be filled. I don't know what they expect, but it's something that is known as kind of the health and wealth gospel that people say, well, I can go to Jesus and he will heal me 100% of the time as long as I call upon his name. Or anytime I go to him, he will give me money. But you see, when we go to Jesus with the wrong expectations, we're usually going to be disappointed. Because Jesus came to provide spiritual healing for our souls so that we can enter into eternal glory when we leave this earth. So again, are you content with that? Is that enough for you? Or do you feel like there are still things in this earth that you expect, maybe even demand, demand Jesus to give to you? Because we saw that in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament rather, with many of the Jews, they went to Jesus for their own selfless expectations. And as soon as Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, well, that usually led to unbelief. And in fact, I have a slide up here. It's kind of an overview of John chapter 7. So in the first 13 verses, as we read, there was some family drama with Jesus and his brothers about going to Judea for the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's important to note that during these big feasts, 
All able-bodied men were required to be at one of these festivals. And so Jesus' brothers knew that there would be a big crowd, and that's why they wanted Jesus to go down there. But of course it says that they weren't even really believing, they were not true believers. And I also want to make note on that, and maybe you've never heard it, but there is a criticism of Jesus. Some out there will say, well, Jesus told his brothers that he wasn't going to go to Judea, but then he did. And so the question then arises, was Jesus being deceptive? No, not at all. Jesus was being told by his brothers to go very publicly, but it tells us very clearly he did not go publicly because, again, it was not his appointed time. So Jesus did go to Judea, but not in a public manner like his brothers expected him. So he said he wasn't going to go publicly, and he did not go publicly. So anyway, we know that Jesus does go to Judea, and then the next ten verses we would read that Jesus teaches at the Feast of Tabernacles. And for time's sake, unfortunately, we're not going to go into all of this, but Jesus does go and he teaches at the Feast of Tabernacles. But again... Many of the Jews that were there had certain expectations about who Jesus was. They believed him to be coming as a conquering king in the line of David, and they expected that Jesus was coming to deliver them from their Roman oppressors. But that was not what Jesus came to teach. Again, he came to teach about spiritual truths. But because the folks, the Jewish folks, had unrealistic expectations, We would read that there's a lot of controversy and unbelief with regards to who Jesus was. And we read some of that here in verse in verse 12. It says there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. You see what happens when we have certain expectations of Jesus that are inappropriate When Jesus doesn't meet those expectations, that's going to lead to unbelief. We saw it happening here with the Jewish folks in Gospel of John, really chapter 6 and 7, but it happens so many times today. People, they go to Jesus for the wrong reasons. It's really exciting when their relationship with Jesus is new and fresh. But if they don't understand Jesus according to the scriptures, as soon as Jesus does something that they didn't expect or they didn't want, then they start to have shaky faith. They start to have doubts. They start to maybe fall away from the reality of who who Jesus said he was. So it's important that when we go to Jesus, we don't go to him with inappropriate expectations, demanding certain things. We go to Jesus according to who the scriptures present him to be. Because I want to show you what it looks like. And I don't think I have this up there. But in John chapter 7, verses 36, Jesus says this during his teaching. Actually, sorry, it's 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of flowing of living water. And that's really what I've kind of based this sermon on is that statement right there. He who believes in me, as the scripture says. So again, we accept Jesus based on what the scripture says. Not our parents, 
not any church, not any denomination, not any tradition, but as the scriptures say. And so I have a few different places here. What do the scriptures say about Jesus? And we're going to reference primarily the Old Testament right here because we know that the New Testament speaks about Jesus. But I want to show you what the Old Testament has to say. So in John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says that Moses wrote of him. He's talking to the Jewish leaders and he says, if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. Here's something really interesting to note. The Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus, they almost elevated Moses above God their father. Very often, the Jewish leaders during the time of Jesus would refer back to Moses more often than they would refer to God their father. I mean, Moses was a prophet, he was a great man, but he still was a man, a flawed man, but yet the Jewish leaders considered Moses to be very high. They probably exalted him a little more than they needed to. But Jesus knew this. He knew their hearts, and that's why he himself referred to Moses, because he knew the Jewish leaders. He knew that they considered Moses a very high and elevated man. So Jesus says, look, if you believe Moses, which I know you do, You would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, Jesus is referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, what we may call the Torah or the Law, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And really, for the Jewish leaders, the first five books of the Old Testament were the most important books. That is where they got their law, their way of life. And so Jesus is saying the first five books... That he was crediting Moses with writing and we would credit Moses with writing those first five books too. He says those books were calling to me, were pointing to me. And he talks about Abraham. You see, not it wasn't just Moses that the Jewish leaders elevated, but it was also Abraham. Really the father of their faith. Abraham's grandfather, his name was Eber. That's where we get the English term Hebrew from. And so really the Hebrew people, the Israelites, came from Abraham. And so Jesus refers to Abraham. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And a couple verses later is where Jesus says, I tell you the truth before Abraham, I am. And then in Luke 24, both verses 27 and 44, Jesus refers to the entire Old Testament and ultimately says that the entire Old Testament was written about him. Now, for us today in 2022, we call it the Old Testament. But back during that time, the New Testament did not exist. Really, the only scriptures they had was the was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And so for this, in Luke 24... Jesus was saying, your scriptures is all about me. And I think I have that, uh, Andrea, in the next slide there. Yeah, so in Luke twenty four twenty seven, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is Jesus, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then in verse uh, 44, he said to them, this is Jesus again, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
The Jewish folks, and still to this day, they break up their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, in three categories. The Law of Moses, the first five books, the Wisdom Writings, or what we would look at as the, the Psalms, and then the Prophets, too. So they say the, the Law of Moses, the first five books, the Historical Writings, and then the Wisdom Books. And that would have encapsulated their entire scripture, what we call the Old Testament. So Jesus is very clearly saying in these two verses, all the scriptures were written about him. So Jesus said, Moses wrote about him. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And ultimately, the entire Old Testament points to him. It speaks about him. That is what the scriptures are about. Ultimately, like I said earlier, the Old Testament points forward to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. The New Testament really helps us to understand who he was on the earth, but it also points towards his second coming. And here's the thing. We just celebrated Christmas. We celebrated the birth of Jesus. The first time he came, he came very humbly and uh, as a babe, as a helpless babe. But make no mistake about it, when Jesus comes again, he will come as a conquering king. And so how many here are ready for that? How many here are ready to be swept up and to, to serve and lead with the king of kings? But before we do that, we must accept Jesus for who he is. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about here that's really important. You see, the Feast of Booths, as we've talked about, which is going on in John chapter 7, it takes place every fall, and it always takes place right after something that's called Yom Kippur. So maybe some of you have seen on your calendars that day, Yom Kippur, it means Day of Atonements. And so in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the Christ. So they had other things that they had to do to atone for their sins. Now, first, the Jews had what was called the tabernacle, especially as they were wandering through the desert. But later, when they were established in Israel, they would have the temple. And I have a, a picture up here of the temple. We can kind of look at that. I know it's not the best picture. It's kind of bright there. But in the temple, they had several different layers. So they had what was called the outer courts, which was outside the temple. They had inside the temple, but really in the deepest part of the temple, they had the innermost room, what was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the facility, the rest of the temple, by a very heavy curtain. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the originally inscribed Ten Commandments. And there were many other religious relics in there. But what's really important is that this is the room that God would come and his presence would literally be with his people, but only on one day a year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But you see, even then, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, God, his presence would fill the Holy of Holies, but he was still separated from the rest of his people by this curtain, by the temple, and by the outer courts. And there wasn't any just random person that could go in the Holy of Holies. Only one man was allowed in the Holy of Holies, and only one day a year. It was the high priest. The high priest was the only one that was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And he could only go in there after he had gone through a very rigorous cleansing process. 
And before he would go in, they would take two lambs. One lamb who was perfect, who was unblemished. They would slay this lamb, and then the high priest would take that blood into the Holy of Holies with him. There was another lamb that they had that he would take the blood from the sacrificial lamb. He would put a handprint on that other lamb and send it off into the wilderness. That was the sacrificial lamb or the scapegoat. That's where we get that phrase, the scapegoat, because that blood, that bloody handprint represented the sins of the people that they would send off into the wilderness. But again, only one man was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. But you see, Hebrews tells us that Christ himself is our great high priest. And not only is Christ himself our great high priest, but he was also the sacrificial lamb. He fulfilled both. He was the fulfillment of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He is our great high priest and the sacrificial lamb. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Here's what's really neat. You see back on uh, in the Old Testament when the great high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies by himself with his blood. But Jesus, who poured out his blood, takes his blood into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. But we who have called upon his name, we are brought in with him. So we don't have to wait outside, but rather our great high priest, because of his blood, brings us into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And that is really an amazing thing. It is what happens really on a Sunday morning when we as his people sing his praises, but even out in this world, it doesn't just happen on one day a year, on one day a week. Really, as Christians, anytime we are out in this world because of Christ Jesus, we are being brought into the throne room of God. And so we are also encouraged when we enter into the throne room of God to do so boldly and courageously. We have been reconciled with God, our Father in heaven, a relationship that was broken in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. But because of our great high priest, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, we have now been reconciled with God, our Father. This is what Jesus says for us. This is who he is according to the scriptures. And for those of us who believe, as he says in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so we're going to end the way we begin. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the son of God? Is he the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away your sins? For those of you who have called upon his name. Or was he simply just a historical man, Jesus of Nazareth? Again, the answer to that question is of the utmost importance. It is the difference between eternal hope and eternal damnation. So who is Jesus to you and who is the real Jesus? Are they the same? Have you accepted the real Jesus according to the scriptures? Have you accepted that the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament speak about Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart that Jesus is Lord? You know, when I was younger, well, I actually wasn't that young. I was 17 when I first became a Christian. But for many years, I would ask the question really to myself, how do I know that I am a Christian? 
Is there some sort of a litmus test to know that I am in fact saved? And I believe there actually is. So Romans 10.9 says very clearly, it says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, we as humans, we have a, uh, a bad habit of overcomplicating everything. But when it comes to salvation, it's really rather simple. It's, it's one verse. Believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Confess that with your mouth and you will be saved. And that's just not a one-time confession, really. I've tried to make it a practice to confess that daily, if not multiple times a day, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because we as humans, we need all the reminders that we can get. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of the God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Church, if you can stand here today and sincerely say that Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart, praise God because you are saved. You have the hope of glory, Jesus Christ, living in you. So here in a few moments, we're going to pray and we are going to confess together that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We're going to believe that in our hearts. And if this is the first time that you've ever done that or the first time in a long time, praise God. Because there is nothing more important than the salvation of our souls. There is nothing more important than the forgiveness of our sins. And it's not anything that we could ever achieve on our own, but rather the Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. That for those of us who believe in him according to the scriptures, that living waters will flow from us in and through us. So Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, Lord and Savior, God incarnate, the word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. I hope that you have accepted these things and I hope that you believe these things. Let us pray together this morning. God, my Father in heaven, we come to you as, as people of God, as children of God. And we confess together this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is Jesus, the Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. We accept that he has taken away our sins and we give, him, we give ourselves to him fully. God, as your people this morning, we accept the full account of Jesus Christ according to your scriptures. We accept what the Bible says about him. And God, I know that sometimes there are hard lessons for us in scripture. I know sometimes there are things that we would rather not be there, God, but I pray that you give us the conviction to believe those things anyway, even when they are hard to believe. God, I pray that you would encourage your people, embolden them as they go out into this world, that you would help them stand firm in the convictions that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And God, if there is anyone here this morning that has yet to accept Christ, I pray that your spirit would be working in and through them to be working on their heart to turn them to a saving relationship with Jesus, the Christ, our Lord and Savior. God, I pray for your people this morning that you would be with them. You would encourage them, you would edify them, and ultimately you would continually draw their eyes, their gaze upon Jesus. 
Pray that your spirit would be with your people as we leave this place. And we say in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.